so we're going to go ahead and, uh, and get started here. I'm going to ask Alicia Harrison to come up. She's going to read our scripture for us. And Alicia's in the back talking. Alicia. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> You're good. So Alicia's going to read our scripture for us this morning. We are going to be in Acts 9. Uh, yes. And guys, as Alicia uh, kind of gets set up here, I just want to let you know that this morning we are talking about that the passage that we are in is a description of one of the central events in the history of the world, okay? That the passage that we are reading this morning is a passage that has changed the course of human history. And that's true whether you call yourself a Christian or not. That, that the story that we're in this morning, and this is not like a tangential detail in the text, this text itself, what this text narrates, the event that we see represented in Acts 9 is an event that changed the world. So with that intro, huh? It's exciting, right? Uh, Alicia's going to read for us out of Acts 9. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It will also be up here on the screen if you want to follow along. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man, a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. 
And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for he did, they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Thanks, Alicia. Will you shut that door before you go sit down? Thanks. Okay, I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. We trust this morning that you, uh, that you are here and that you are speaking to us. Lord, would you open our hearts and tune us uh, to the message of, of grace that you have for us this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we talked about how this event uh, was a monumental event in the history of the world. Secular historians, right, will say that, that potentially, if you kind of take God out of the equation, that Paul as a historical figure is potentially even more significant than Jesus himself. Because Paul is responsible in so many ways for the gospel spreading beyond where it kind of began uh, in, in Jerusalem and in Judea and exploding out into the rest of the world. This is an, an incredibly uh, compelling event. And this event, it, it's not only a, a past event in history that matters for kind of cause and effect in the way the world is played out, uh, the reason we have the world that we have today, but it's incredibly relevant for you and I in where we sit in our lives today. It's even incredibly relevant for the sermon, plot twist, for the sermon series we're in, right? Okay, uh, so we're in the book of Acts, right? Can anyone tell me, what, what are, what's like the major theme that we've been pounding away on as we work our way through this book? Anybody? Okay. This is more reflection on my teaching, I guess, than anything else. Uh, mission, yes, there we go, right? We've been talking about the church on mission. That that's what we see in the book of Acts, is what it looks like when God has taken this group of people breathe his Holy Spirit on them, and they go out into the world proclaiming who Jesus is and what he has done. So we've been talking about kind of through each of these different scriptures, what they teach us, how they speak to us as a people who ourselves are on mission with the Lord. And Paul's story kind of fits into that framework of us being a people who are on mission. And what we see in this story is that, that, that Christ uh, converts that's true in this passage, it's true in Saul's life, and that has direct relevance for us in the lives that we lead and the mission that we're on. That Jesus Christ is a God he's, who, who converts people. And what we also see in this passage is that Jesus Christ, uh, he frees us from shame. And that was true for, for Paul, and that's true for us. And the reality of that for us is incredibly relevant as we consider what it means for us to be a community of people who are on mission in, of, and for East Nashville. Okay, so let's jump into it. 
we got to talk a little bit about Paul and his background to understand the magnitude of what has happened in this passage. So Paul kind of tells his story in different places throughout the New Testament, and as we kind of piece it together, we get this 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 picture of who Paul was, that Paul was born into a devout Jewish household in Tarshish, which is this place in, uh, in Turkey. And he grew up from a very young age studying God's word, memorizing the Old Testament. And when he was just a boy, he was sent uh, across the ocean to Jerusalem to study at the feet of one of the greatest rabbis of the day, Gamaliel. So we see kind of over the course of Paul's life that he has from infancy been trained to be, to be devoted to following God. Paul even describes this himself in the book of Philippians. He says, if anyone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That Paul has spent, his, he's leveraged his entire life uh, building a resume of religious accomplishment. And Luke, the author of Acts, being the excellent author that he is, has already kind of started to introduce Saul, into, Saul, Paul, into our narrative. Paul has already made a few cameos in the book of Acts. In Acts 7, 8, we talked about uh, the first martyr, right? Stephen, this man who was stoned because he was proclaiming Jesus. Stoned like people threw rocks at him until he died, that kind of stoned. And in Acts 7, 58, it says the witnesses the people who were throwing rocks at Stephen, they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then at the end of that story, after Stephen has died, it says Saul approved of the killing. So Saul, Paul, okay, we've got to talk about this. I'm sorry, this is unclear. Saul and Paul, this whole difference. Saul is, uh, is this man's kind of Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. So throughout the New Testament, you kind of get different, uh, he'll use different names depending on where he is. So we'll call him Paul for the sake of this, just to kind of keep it clear in our minds, right? Uh, but Paul has this religious resume, and he has so invested himself in, in following God, he believes wholeheartedly, so sincerely in this God that he's following, that he is even willing to persecute other people because he believes that they are blaspheming the God that he worships. as a way of kind of defending the faith, he's going after these other people who he believes have twisted and misunderstood what faith was all about. And that's where our story picks up. That Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. What an intense picture, right? Goes to the high priest and asks him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So what he's done is he's gone to the, the religious rulers in Jerusalem and he said, hey, will, will you give me essentially um, a warrant to go and search for people who are following Jesus uh, in other cities saying that if I find them, I can bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial on religious grounds. That's how passionate Paul is about pursuing single-mindedly what he believes is true about God. 
But then something happens. He's on this road to Damascus, and, and if, there's an event uh, that changes his life. I just want to stop and, and step out of the storyline for a moment to say, uh, this is one of the events that regardless of what you think about Christianity, uh, you have to wrestle with. That's true about the resurrection of Jesus, right? It presents this moment, this kind of event that is claimed to have happened in history that forces us to ask the question, is that true? Because if it's true, it changes everything. And in a similar way, that's true about the conversion of Paul. That no historian denies that Paul was a real person, that he existed. And no one questions Paul's biography, that he was a devout follower of the God of Israel, a persecutor of Christians. And no one denies that something in Paul changed. That rather being a persecutor of people who follow Jesus, he started following Jesus himself, and not only following him, but proclaiming him. What causes that kind of change in someone? It's a question, it's a, it's a historical event, a historical event that we're all forced to, to reckon with. And here's what the scriptures tell us happened. That Paul, in the midst of this journey, sees a flash of blinding light and that he hears and sees the risen and resurrected Jesus. And that that event changes everything for Paul. And I want to be very clear, Paul does not have a dream, something that is kind of unreal or mystical. No, Paul sees Jesus. And what he realizes is that this Jesus, who he has condemned, who he has dismissed, is, is in fact the Son of God. The risen, the resurrected Jesus who is now ascended to the Father and is seated at the right hand of God. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? That's another way of saying, like, who are you, sir? Clearly, you're someone important because you're speaking to me in this kind of miraculous way. But I don't know who you are. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But that statement right there shakes the very foundations of Paul's life. That everything that he has so passionately been pursuing, he realizes he's been wrong about. And it totally moves Paul's life in a different direction. It's so why we would call this the conversion of Paul. That Paul was moving one way and he turns and now because of his encounter with Jesus is moving a different way. Does the word conversion make any of you uncomfortable? Uh, anybody? Is anybody awake with me this morning? Okay. Yeah, a little bit? Like I was watching Survivor this week, which if you've been here for a while, you know, big Survivor fan, okay? That's one of the things we watch in my house. And uh, there, was, there was a woman a few weeks ago who, who started on the show, and she was a, 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 a Christian from Nigeria. And as they were doing a little background on this woman and her life, she talks about how she uh, works with, with people in Nigeria who have converted from Islam to Christianity uh, and, and how she 
the shelter that she's a part of creates a safe space, especially for women and children. And I will tell you, as I was watching network television and heard the word conversion, I went, ooh. They said that. That is a word for, for many of us that has a, kind of a negative tinge to it, probably because of the ways we've heard it used and abused throughout our lives, right? That we think of conversion, we think of like the point of the sword, we think of the crusades or something. Or we think of people kind of on the street corner shouting things in a megaphone. And so we can kind of slowly back away from this idea. It can kind of become embarrassing to us. And it affects, here's the thing, is it affects even the ways that we tell our own, our own stories, doesn't it? That the way that we like to think about our own stories is, well, you know, I was a pretty good person, and I, like, I believed in God, you know, trying to do the right thing. And then I met Jesus, started going to church, and I got even better. I got to add Jesus to the mix, you know? And now I got peace, and I got hope, and I got joy, and, and, I'm, and I'm an even better person than I was. Are you ever tempted to think about your story that way? I'll tell you, uh, that is not the gospel, right? That what has happened to Paul is the story that has happened to all of us. That if you were in Christ, Jesus has come in, and he's interrupted your life. He's come in and he's moved it in a different direction. Though what's true about all of us is that apart, for God, apart, apart from the work of Jesus, we're in the place that our first vow talked about this morning with our, mem- with our new members. That we're separated from God because of our sin. But that what Jesus has done is he's come for us and he's, he's, he's changed us. That he's set us on a different path to move in a different direction. This idea of conversion, it's a necessary part of the Christian story and experience. And uh, a necessary part of the Christian story and experience. The nature of that conversion, man, it's a change in our ideas and our beliefs predominantly about who Jesus is first and foremost. That for Saul, for Paul, right, Jesus went from being just another person, kind of a rabble rouser, uh, a zealot, maybe, a political reactionary, a revolutionary, uh, to being the Son of God, a risen and a resurrected Savior. And that change in idea, uh, it sparked in Paul a total reorientation, not only of what was in his mind, but the way that he lived in the world. It says in verse 2 that he had, Paul had asked for letters at, for the synagogues of Damascus, so if he found any belonging to the way, that the way was the way that people characterized the church, that they called people initially, instead of Christians, followers of the way, because there was this reorientation and a new way of walking, that upon conversion, people said to Jesus, you are now uh, like my master craftsman, and I'm an apprentice to you. Teach me Teach me how to live. That the thing that we're, that we're working on, that I'm, that I'm learning about, is, is how to live life under, under a new master. And we know that that was true for Paul because of the way, his suffer, his, uh, the way that his approach to suffering changed. That Paul went from, a, went from a person who was dealing out suffering to other people very intentionally to a person who is willing to accept suffering in his own life. 
who was willing to suffer for what he believed in, suffer for what Christ had called him to. What that shows is that Paul had not only a change in his belief, not only a change in the way that he lived, but he also had a change in his heart, in the way that he felt and experienced the world. And there's a call here for us as the people of God that the way that we understand and tell our stories to ourselves and to each other would reflect this kind of uh, life-transforming work of Jesus for us. That part of being a people who are on mission is recognizing the way that Jesus has come on mission into our stories. And maybe, maybe when you hear that, that's kind of hard to wrap your mind and heart around. Maybe you... you, um, if you've been around the church for a while, you know, you've been asked to tell your testimony. You may have said or heard something like, uh, well, uh, when I was four, I prayed a prayer and I accepted Jesus into my heart and you know, I was raised in a Christian home. Have any of you ever heard that or said that about your own life? I know I have, okay. So no shade on that. But we can think about our stories if you've been around church for a while as, this, as, uh, as, uh, as if there is nothing remarkable that has occurred in our lives as if Jesus has not come for us? No. Even if, this, even if your story is a story of someone who has grown up in the church, of someone who has always known who Jesus was, you still have things like this in your life, don't you? Moments where you were moving one direction towards sin and Jesus came in and he reorient, reoriented you and pushed you in a different direction? Where you were forced to grapple with how far your heart can be away from God to cry out for forgiveness? that in the midst of your suffering, Jesus has met you and ministered to you, cared for and comforted you? Yeah, we all have those moments. Those are the moments that we tell over and over again when we're talking about our story with Jesus. If you think about this, the book of Acts, uh, this story is told three different times. There's a lot of material about the early church that I would love to know about that Luke is not interested in telling us. But what he is interested in telling us three different times is a conversion story of Saul. Saul how Saul becomes Paul. It's because knowing those stories about ourselves and other people matters. It's one of the principal ways that God moves and works and is on mission in our world is through our stories of what Jesus has done in our own hearts and lives. So our Jesus is a Jesus who converts, who changes. And he is also a Jesus who frees. As I've been studying the story this week, it is shocking to me how quickly Paul changes his jersey jersey and starts playing for the other team. Right? That he like doesn't sit on the bench even for a minute. In the gap of what we're reading here, uh, the the very next verse in Acts, what is it, uh, 20, it says that Paul immediately, after being strengthened with food and and, experiencing the Holy Spirit, having the Holy Spirit indwell him, he is out preaching about who Jesus is to the people of Damascus. What? There's this baseball player earlier this year, Christian Vasquez. Do you guys know this guy? Okay, neither do I. I'm just kind of stepping on a limb here using a sports analogy, so just go with me. (laughs) So Christian Vasquez, uh, Vasquez, he's a a catcher, okay? Played for the Red Sox earlier this year. Mid-season is traded to the Houston, Houston Astros. He's traded literally 
as the Red Sox are playing the Astros. So he has on a Red Sox jersey and then gets a, gets a note, hey, you've been traded to the Astros. And on his way to the Astros uh, dugout, this is happening during batting practice, people like accost him and put their iPhones in his face and like, hey, it sounds like you've just been traded to the Astros. What do you think about that? And he's like, duh, it's a business is what he says. So then he suits up, like puts on the other jersey and goes to play for the other team. Shocking, okay? More shocking is what happened to Paul. You see, he's similar but different, bigger, right? A bigger change for Paul. <laughs> Do you ever think that maybe in that change, Paul wondered um, if he was qualified to do what he was about to go do? Do you think the shoulds in his life or the should nots ever got loud? You of all people? Preaching the gospel? I want you to think about Paul standing in front of the other disciples in Jerusalem. Or let's even say before that, before he got there and they said, oh, we don't want to talk to this guy because we don't trust him. What do you think he heard when he heard that? Or that when he stood in front of them, that he could not help but see the faces of their friends and family members, the people who he had arrested and handed over uh, to be killed. And you think in that moment there was any doubt in Paul about whether or not God had actually called him to be on mission with him? I don't know, I'm not Paul. But I do know that I'm a person, uh, and I know that you are people, and I know that those are parts of our stories. And when we are called in the mission of Jesus, we are constantly uh, questioning, who, me? And I say I don't know that Paul has wrestled with that, but I think we can be pretty confident that he did. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But what this tells us is that Paul is a man who is familiar with shame. And I want to talk about shame here for a minute because it's so important for us to wrap our minds and our hearts around what Scripture teaches on this topic if we are going to be a people who are on mission with Jesus here in East Nashville. And I want to talk about kind of two different kinds of shame, okay? Here, we're going to do this, okay. that's too small, I'll just tell you what it says. It says healthy and unhealthy, okay? There's two different ways of experiencing shame. We can talk about shame like, oh, well, you know, it's shame, you should just never feel it. Guys, if that were true, we would have a big problem on our hands, right? Because let me tell you what shame is. This is from an author uh, who I love. His name is Chip Dodd. He says, shame is the emotional and spiritual recognition of the potential to fail and do harm, to succeed and to love. I'm gonna read that to you again. Shame is the emotional and spiritual recognition of the potential to fail and do harm, to succeed and to love. But the gift of shame is that it reminds us that we are limited people, 
Shame reminds us that we are people who sin, that we're people who make mistakes, that we're people who fall short, that we are people who have some gifts but don't have every gift. And that's a gift. We hear it in the very next verse of what Paul has to say to us in 1 Corinthians 15. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul is aware of his limits, shortcomings, failings, sins in his life, right? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them that it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. What Paul is laying out here for us is a, a healthy understanding of what shame is. But he's acknowledging, yeah, I, uh, I do not deserve God's love in my life. That I have sinned in ways that, uh, uh, that are soul-crushing, soul-scarring. And he says, but the grace of God was even greater than those things that those things have been forgiven. That Paul is a man who is free from the shame of carrying around the shame of those things. It doesn't mean that he's forgotten that they've happened, that he's tried to escape them. What it means is that Paul knows that Jesus has paid the cost of those things, so he does not have to keep trying to make up a way to pay the cost himself. Okay, that is healthy shame. I will tell you, uh, in my own life, that is not always the way that I experience shame. But often, the way I experience it is ways that you could call unhealthy or, or you could call it toxic. And I, I've been trying to think about how, how do we kind of wrap our minds and our hearts around what that looks like because it, it, guys, it has invaded, toxic shame has invaded every corner of our lives. We underestimate it all the time, but it's there and it's there and it's running uh, like a program that you have to force quit on your computer, Okay. It's there running in the background and it is soaking up our energy and our ability to do other things. Like, have you ever wanted to hang out with someone and you're about to text them and then you think, wait, I can't do that because I haven't hung out with them in a while. Has that ever happened to you? So like before I text them, I gotta make sure that I like see them in person or they like, oh, I like go on the text thread and I see that they were the last person who texted me and they asked me a question, but I didn't respond to it. And now I'm gonna ask them if they wanna hang out. I can't do that. Anybody? You know, maybe it's just me. Okay, so a little window into my life, right? Or what about ask, well, this is even harder for me. What about asking somebody for help when you haven't seen them lately? Like, I can't ask you to help me if I haven't hung out with you and kind of greased the wheels a little bit, right? Okay, all of that, you know what that is? That's shame. That's me controlling your image of me. It's, it's entering life in the sense of quid pro quo of I'm not enough by myself and so I've got to kind of work my circumstances to be able to engage with you. And when I, when we are constantly operating out of that mode, what happens is that we miss all kinds of opportunities in our lives to create and participate in the beauty that God is about in the world. That when I say, well, I, I can't ask you for help because I haven't, I haven't talked to you in a while. What, what I miss out on is the help that, you, that I need from you that you miss out on the opportunity to help, to help someone who needs it. 
And we could play that little example out over and over and over again in our lives in so many ways, big and small. And that's true, especially as we consider being on mission with Jesus, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses, la, la, la. Okay, for other people, right? But for me, in my life, with my story, I will tell you, friends, we are up against it. Because in our flesh, the world around us, our enemy, the devil, which one of these ways of relating to shame do you think he's most interested in? You can tell me. Unhealthy, right? You have an enemy. I have an enemy in our world that is constantly trying to pull us into this unhealthy way of dealing with our shame. That the enemy who is always there whispering to us, you're not good enough. How dare you think you could be involved in something like that? You? You've been disqualified. An enemy who's pulling us that way, a world that's pulling us that way, and even in our own hearts, this is the way that is easiest for us to live. That on a, on a neurological level, your brain responds to shame so much more quickly and so much more powerfully that it responds to any other emotional stimulus in your life. That our brains are wired and rewired by shame so much faster than they are rewired by any other emotion in our lives. It's a book called The Soul of Desire if you want to read more about it. You can do it. I've drawn a lot from Kurt Thompson, even in what we're talking about this morning. So big, big props to him, okay? But that's true. The, the world, ourselves, the way that we are, we gravitate toward this so often. And what, what we need to fight in our lives against that, I will tell you, one of the things that is essential is other people. Which is exactly the opposite of what I want to do when I'm feeling shame, right? Those are by definition the places I don't want you to know about. Think about Paul. He's sitting in this room, uh, unable to see, having the whole foundation of his life ripped out from under him, and then this man comes to him who has been following Jesus for a long time. You think he's a little bit worried about what this guy's gonna say to him? And here's the first word, that, the first word that Paul hears from the lips of another believer is the word brother. Brother Saul. And you feel the shame melt away? Ananias had a hard time getting there, okay? He had words with Jesus in a vision about it, so there's a lot going on, okay? But what that tells us is that God is incredibly interested in dealing with the shame in our lives, and one of the primary ways he has chosen to do that is by the people who are sitting right around you. That when Paul goes to Jerusalem, the disciples there, they don't trust him. They don't want to talk to him. And for good reason, right? And again, what does it take? It takes someone else who believes what about, who believes in what Jesus is doing in Paul's life to go before those other Christians and say, guys, Jesus has changed this man. Let me tell you about God's work in his life on his behalf. That is only possible because Paul has gone to Barnabas and shared his story. 
It's through other people that, that God primarily works to bring healing in the places of our deepest shame. To move us out of the, the toxic uh, obsession with self that comes from unhealthy shame and to move us into a place of freedom, of being able to admit, yes, I am a person with limits and Jesus has met me in those limits. The calling for us this morning from this passage is that we would rejoice as a people who have been converted, who have been turned from darkness to life, from one path to another. That we would rejoice as a people who have been freed from our shame, who have been converted, who have been freed as we gaze upon and look at and are reminded of our Jesus. That's the only place this power comes from. It's from, from the experience of encountering the loving gaze of Jesus who has nothing but grace and mercy for us when we come to him. And I will tell you, he is inviting you to come. Maybe that's for the first time. Maybe for the first time, Jesus is inviting you even this morning to come to him. Yes, come. To lay out uh, with him all, all of the shame that you carry and all of the reasons for it and to experience his love and his grace this morning. That's for you. And maybe you're here and you've had that experience a thousand times. Maybe it's an experience you had in your past and haven't had recently. I will tell you this morning that your Jesus is waiting for you to come and experience him face to face saying, I love you, I'm for you. You have been changed and I am changing you. So I'm gonna invite uh, the people who are leading us in worship to come on up. And they're going to lead us in some songs that really focus us on looking at Jesus. We get to experience that even as we worship this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Father, thank you for Jesus. He uh, has come into our world, into our lives uh, to change us. Lord, to lead us out of the darkness, the sin, the lostness, the self-righteousness, that we experience so often in our own hearts and to take us in a different direction, Lord, into freedom. We pray that as we worship this morning that you would, that you would be working that freedom more and more into our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.